I, I really, really have trouble with when I've heard Christians, pastors say uh, COVID has been a blessing because we got more time to think. Mm. We got more, more time to understand. I, I don't agree with that. And I think that that really insults and mocks the over, you know, 500,000, I think it's almost 600,000 now, people who have died from, from COVID in the U.S. alone. Hello, everyone. This is Meng Fei Li from Lithuania, and welcome to our brand new episode of The Missing Piece. Unlike our previous shows, I like to ask you a bold question first. What is pain? And how should we understand the meaning of pain today? I know this is, might not be a question that you can have the answer immediately. Because today, it's rather difficult and also complex to distinguish the difference between experiencing something painful or to simply that having the pain in our hearts. Famous Christian author C.S. Lewis wrote a book entitled The Problem of Pain. Even though the name of the book was not difficult, the content is rather sophisticated. We all go through ups and downs in life, and experiencing pain is part of who we are. As a matter of fact, in the Bible, Jesus clearly laid out, He has never promised us that we won't go through difficulties or won't face challenges at all. Ultimately, different people might interpret pain variously. According to their own standards, especially in this religious sense or uh, among the religious figures, we tend to seek wisdom from these so-called religious icons, or maybe the next level is religious celebrities. But where do we draw the line in the sand? When it comes to following these Christian authors, Christian models, Christian icons, should we expect all of them to be perfect, sinless, the best example or embodiment of Jesus? Well, join our show today is J.S. Park. J.S. Park is a hospital chaplain, a published author, viral blogger, and teaching pastor. He has spent nearly the past six years as an intern faith chaplain at a thousands of beds hospital that is designated a level one trauma center. His role includes grief counseling, attend every death, every trauma, and co-blue, assisting with end-of-life care and supporting patient and family advocacy. He also serves as a chaplain at one of the largest non-profit charities for the homeless on the East Coast. And of course, that he's the author of the latest book entitled The Voices We Carry, Finding Your One True Voice in a World of Clamor and Noise. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to invite 
J.S. Park. Hey, J.S. Park, welcome to my show. Hey, Meng Fei, I'm so glad to be on your show. I appreciate your invitation. Thank you. Well, J.S., you know, there are just so many things that we can actually talk about, but I do want to get started. What is your faith journey? Because based on your um, description or based on um, the information that you share on social media, you are actually an atheist. And we know that, you know, there has to be a point or there has to be a, a, a turning point that for someone to say, all right, you know what? I need to make a decision or it's time to, to really understand about this Christian or about this faith or religion. Can you share with us a little bit what brought you to this Christian journey? Yeah, so if I were to start back, you know, growing up like many second generation Asian Americans, my parents immigrated here and then, uh, you know, I was considered sort of an accident. I was born by accident. They didn't plan on having me. Of course, we know uh, in my faith, I know that there are no accidents. Mm. But uh, when my parents, as I grew up, when they, um, you know, moved and settled in finally, they wanted me to go to church. So like any Korean American first generation parent, they tried to take me to a Korean church. And I hated it. Absolutely did not like it. I fought against it. I remember being angry about having to go and hearing a couple of the sermons. And even as young as I was, I decided around probably 10 or 11, I was an atheist and remained so, I would say, until throughout college and maybe even after that, probably till my mid-20s. Mm. And to answer your question, Meng Fei, I, you know, growing up an atheist and also with an Eastern, more traditional uh, background, uh, with those Eastern practices, I only became interested in actually looking at Christianity because of other Christians, not because of any sort of apologetics or a transmission of information or some sort of persuasion. But I started going to church because this uh, Korean church, I think around high school or college, they needed a, a drummer <laughs> and I happened to play drums. So I, I played for them, but I didn't, I, when uh, the sermon was going, I listened, but I just kind of took it as practical advice. When they got to the Jesus stuff, I just sort of let it go over my head. Um, but being around these Christians, they had a supernatural kind of love, you know? Mm. And, and I just thought, oh, all these people had it easy, they had an easy life. But as I talk with each person, they each kind of grew up, uh, struggled as much as I did or even more. And I thought, how, how do they have this kind of love? How did they have this kind of healing in their lives? This is impossible, right? So really, I extrapolated backwards. I was around people who exemplified and demonstrated a Christ-like love and grace. And I had to find out, how are they doing this? And then that was when I got interested in what is Christianity all about and what is the history and what is the theology and and what is the reason behind this faith and how is it true? And so, Monfei, that wasn't an easy journey and it wasn't an overnight journey. I can't say that there was a light bulb switch. I know many atheists who turn Christians, they can point to a specific moment. But I would say that what it was an accumulation of a, of a series of small light bulbs and also the Christian community that eventually got me to a point where my faith awakened, 
where, where my faith kind of slowly, slowly, it was like the light slowly turning on in the room until I could see all the furniture. Hmm. Well, JS, you know, as you describe that little moments, again, it's not really something so dramatic or something. It would just, um, you know, we can say put in a movie script. So that could be that could turn into a movie, but it wasn't like that. But I remember if I, you know, because I before doing this interview and I did a little research and JS, you are a big fan of C.S. Lewis, and and I'm sure yes. that you read so many books that authored and written by C.S. Lewis, and one of them that I just recently finished reading. And it was quite simple, but also it was also complicated. It's the different kinds of love. You know, C.S. Yes. Lewis, he was a, he's a great author, but he described or he categorized there are four types of love, you know, in terms of uh, love with friends or love for family and love with a couple and also, you know, love for ourselves and etc. But J.S., coming to the point today, I want to ask you, how would you define the word of love? I mean, again, you're welcome to say, oh, because, you know, it's like we, we love others just like G how Jesus loved the disciples or how God loved us. But I want to know from your personal value or from your personal perspective, how would you, you define the world, I mean, the love today in today's world? Yeah, you know. Yeah, when I was when I was saying my answer earlier about oh this Christian community just loved me so much, I was thinking, gosh, was it really that simple? You know, was it really that basic that they just loved me, and then all of a sudden I thought, wow, Christianity must be reasonable and tenable. Like, it, <laughs> and it sounds like such a maybe a trite cliche answer, but you know what? I, it so love is so rare in the world, at least to me, and and, and especially working in the hospital now. Mm. It, to see an example of pure love is just, it's wild and astounding and, and so disruptive and, and unexpected. But when I think of love, I think of it as it's a self-sacrificial effort of pouring out your life for another, right? So it costs something. Mm. And when we think of love as a feeling, when we think, of, of course, love has a feeling. Uh, or when we think of love as romantic love, of course there's love within couples mm. or sometimes within families. Uh, there's love because maybe that's a, that's a biological bond or you could explain it away that way. But there, there is an unreasonable, I, that's a weird word to use, but there's an unreasonable kind of pouring out to another person where it doesn't benefit and there's no credit to it and there's no recognition and it's not tethered to uh, receiving anything back. And it's like I'm pouring out to this person purely in a one-way direction, a unidirectional type of love. And it costs something for me, and this person is getting it for free. Mm. And that's the kind of love that I saw that is so rare in this world. I want to be careful because I don't want to say, oh, only Christians can do this kind of love. But I think the source of it, the inspiration of it, and the continual daily empowering of it uh, does come out of the Christian story. And so when, when you ask that question, like, like what really is, how would I define love? How I've seen it really is pouring out your life 
even when you don't want to. And of course, I'm considering boundaries and safety, and we have to take care of ourselves, and we can't just pour out endlessly. Only God can do that, right? Mm. But when I work in the hospital, sometimes I see a patient who their family will come visit them, and the family will decide, Mm. I can't handle this. And they'll say, I, I can't do this. This person's too sick. This person looks gross. Uh, and, they, and they have this look, and they don't come visit anymore. And, you know, I want to I have grace for that person. Maybe it's traumatic for them, or maybe they're trying to set up boundaries. they got to take care of themselves, too. I get that. But then there are family members or friends or, or even just somebody who cares a lot, who walks into a room of a patient, sees everything the patient is going through, all the tubes and all the smells and all of that. And they stay. And that's hard. It's hard to visit a person every day. It's hard to visit a person who's sick. I mean, if we're being honest, it's not easy being around a person who needs constantly, who's hurting constantly. That's right. But that kind of, that kind of love is a love that stays and pours out even when it gets nothing back. Well, JS, you know, um, it's not easy to talk about to love someone, you know, because... We're all human beings after all, and we always expect what we called reward or some type of compensation because, you know, we say unconditional love and we say we love someone, even within the couples, even say within a marriage, you always think about, well, you know, um, I offer you this favor. Um, maybe I can get something on my birthday or, hey, listen, um, I did something nice for our family. Uh, simply maybe I can get something better for the Christmas time because we always think about the rewards. We always think about how to get something out of someone because we sacrifice our time. We sacrifice our energy, etc. Now, JS, from your perspective, you are a chaplain in the hospital. Of course, that every day you witness the trauma and you witness this pain that people are going through. But this is the universal question. And I, I do want to ask this question on behalf of a lot more millennials today is if there's a God, why is why still there's so much pain in the world today? So in other words, why do you think that bad things are happening to good people or why are bad things are happening to the people who are faithful and even believe in this religion for decades or for their entire life, but somehow they're facing break wall after one another. How would you explain that? Mung Fei, you got got about 12 hours for this uh, (laughs) episode. Wow. That is a huge question. And of course, uh, not the first time that I've encountered that question in, in different various forms of it. I can, I can, you know, I feel like I don't have, I'll be honest, theologically, I know that there are explanations, you know, mm. for, oh, here's, here's why, and here's what happened, and God is doing something, you know, and this is his will, and he's refining you. But, you know, th- those answers I've found are not always helpful. Right. Right. So when I see suffering, when I see pain, I also have question marks in my brain. I also am angry that this is happening. And we won't always know the reason why. And it is unfair. It is very, very unfair. So, you know, I think years ago, 
when I first became a Christian, I felt like I had an answer to those kind of things. Mm. You know, like Genesis fifty twenty. you know, God's going to use evil for good, or, or somehow God is going to turn this around and redeem this pain. But years now into chaplaincy, both at the hospital and now working at the homeless nonprofit, mm. I don't have an easy answer for that one. I can say that there is abuse and systemic evil in this world that does not make it easy pe- for people to thrive. So sometimes a person, when it says, uh, you know, when, when people say, oh, this is happening for a reason, I'll say, yeah, and the reason is because there was a driver who decided to get drunk and injured your child. That's the reason, because of, because of evil, you know. Or, or uh, this person is suffering because there's some kind of systemic poverty. So, yeah, sometimes the reason is because the world, this may be a basic answer, but the reason is the world is broken mm. and there are limited resources. And the thread of what the Bible calls sin is woven throughout all of humanity and our systems. Mm. And so because every there's limited resources and because we can't always get what we want all the time, suffering ensues. And is it always somebody's fault? Not necessarily. Um, is it always uh, something someone did? No, not always. Mm. Uh, but sometimes the world is cruel and unfair. Uh, and what's more unfair for me is if I try to solve this person's pain by telling them a theological answer. Sometimes pain is just pain and there's no lesson and it hurts. Sometimes there's no answer. There's a wound. And I know that on the other side of things, when we're all in glory, maybe there'll be an answer. Maybe mm. God will tell us a reason. Maybe we'll figure it all out together. But while we're here on earth, there's going to be a lot of question marks around why this is happening. And I don't want to say, oh, it's for this person's lesson or learning. I don't want to lecture that person. I'll just say, this hurts and I'm angry for you. And I will grieve with you in this. Mm-hmm. And Mungfei, I know that's not an answer. Maybe that's not the answer the person wants to hear. But sometimes some things are unresolved and left in limbo. And I don't know. I think Christianity offers maybe the best answer for suffering. But I don't know if it can answer completely all our suffering. Mm-hmm. And I think every religion tries to answer that question. And I think Christianity does a great job of it. But I don't know if we and our limited human minds can understand it here on Earth. And I know that's, that's a terrible answer. That's not a great one. But, but it is going to be unresolved. And as it is unresolved, I will hurt with that person when they hurt. Hmm. Well, JS, um, because I know you are a um, hospital chaplain. And of course, you know, for me, it's if I can be honest with you, is every day before... I heading out of work, and I do want to have a few moments or a few minutes to really just spend with the Word of God, you know, just quiet moments. And if there's really no time for me to read the Scripture or look over the, uh, um, I mean, look at the the um the the verses in the Bible, I will simply say or I'll simply pray the Lord's Prayer. So this is something. The question, simple enough to you, is. As a Christian and as a chaplain in the hospital, JS, what do you pray? 
when you actually don't have when you what do you pray when you actually don't have time you know because you can you can yeah. promise yourself to say all right every day i'm gonna sit down for 10 minutes or every day i'm gonna sit down for 20 minutes just really have to study the word of god with my family you know with my wife my children all together we know in in the in, in the perfect world we can do that but in reality is there are a lot more things going on we can't have the 20 minutes every day so js so js let's put in a more practical way is if on the days that you don't have time to study the word of god you don't have time to open up the bible how do you pray brother how do you get yourself get up and get out the door and to know that you're going to make a difference or to know that you're going to bring healing or bring comfort to someone actually they need not just only the hospital, but anywhere you go. How do you do it, brother? Yeah. Are you telling me you don't read the Bible every single day? (laughs) (laughs) You don't pray at the same time every day? No, you know, yeah, I used to make this joke about like, oh, yeah, prayer, I got that on lockdown. I'm perfect. You know, it's just, I think we put so much pressure on that, right, about Mm -hmm. having a perfect prayer life and a and a perfect uh, Bible reading time and devotional. And, you know, when you consider even even just a thousand or fifteen hundred years ago, we didn't have a Bible all in one place and we didn't have all these quiet time books and things like that. Uh, the Bible wasn't in print for everybody. So uh, but that's not to say uh, we, we ought to. I think I ought to pray as much as I can and, and read scripture as much as I can. That's our lifeblood. Mm. But Mung Faith, to answer your question, and I think I can answer this. I actually have an answer for this as opposed to the last question. But, you know, I do this, I would say, every time before I go and see somebody, uh, a patient. When I sanitize, which is before every patient, I always pray this simple prayer. I pray, God, how do you want to work through me right now? Mm. Every time. Wow. Because... When I walk into that patient's room, wherever they're at, whatever religion they are, whichever spiritual place they're at, um, whichever injury or illness they are suffering, they're in some particular place in their story, their faith journey, with their relationships, with their goals. There's a soul in that room. Mm. And I have just a moment to offer my comfort, my support, my empathy, my presence. And I ask God, God, how, how do you want to work through me? How can I be your hands and feet? Mm. How can I be you embodied for this person? Me imperfectly, somehow, by grace, embody the presence and the goodness of God. And so I always ask God, how do you want to work through me? And so I leave myself as an open, I, I know this is an overused word, but I use I, I leave myself open as a vessel mm. so that God is going to breathe his grace and his life through me. And maybe that sounds overly lofty, or maybe that sounds like I'm making myself a big deal. I'm, I'm but really I am I am just trying to be a conduit for whatever God wants to do. And what God often wants to do, I would say always wants to do, is be grace and compassion for this person. To offer presence in their hardest moment. JS, let's talk about your book. Mm-hmm. Why did you decide to write this book? And of course, right now, I think, if I can be honest, is I've read at least two to three different 
books that regarding the so-called noises in the world and also the voices um inside ourselves. And I believe recently there was another book. It's called The Chatterbox. And you know, someone talk about that we always get lost or we always listen to our inner voices and allowed us to be defeated. So in other words, we are not listening to the voice from the universe creator and we allowed ourselves to be consumed by the social media, by the technology and by the negativity or even if I can say, you know, I'm working in this international media field but just every time when i turn on the news or when i turn on the tv to to simply get some positive things i was very disappointed every time because i just know that i know there can be anything so happy or something so uplifting every day so js why bother to write the book what are you trying to um share with the world sure yeah that's a that's a great question. I, <clears throat> you know, when I started training in my hospital chaplaincy, we had to write these journal reflections um, and talk about what we were experiencing. And then we wrote kind of these, it's called a verbatim, but it's almost like a book report on a patient. Uh, what was our encounter like? Mm. And throughout all these different writings, I started feeling like a, like a book was coming together. And that was just an idea at the time. But what I noticed most for me was every time I interacted with a patient, I visited a patient, uh, I brought in my own voices into the room and they would have their voices. And that could be a voice of self-doubt. That could be a voice of uh, their family of origin, what they grew up with, who they grew up with. It could be their trauma. Uh, If we define trauma, that's a negative, debilitating event uh, that overwhelms our resources to cope with it. Um, there, there were all these different voices that I was experiencing and when a patient is in a hospital and I've been in the hospital before, we are in such a crisis and heightened state of mind that it almost seems like all the stuff that we may have buried or suppressed or have kept at bay, you know, like when we're out in public, we modify ourselves and edit ourselves to a degree to, a degree to look presentable. Mm. But in the hospital, that's very difficult to do. People are their truest, rawest selves. That's right. And so, yeah, so I started seeing all of this and I thought, I got to write this down and I got to, I got to discuss what this looks like and, and what are these voices that we're carrying. And, the main thesis of the book is this, is that we carry these voices like, I, I list eight different voices in the book, and there, there may be more, I'm sure there are more, but in each of these voices, whether it's self-doubt or judging other people or trauma or grief, in these voices, they're not all entirely bad through and through. Mm. Um, if we listen in and unscramble these voices, we can get to something good, some kind of fruit in there. And uh, earlier you mentioned C.S. Lewis, and I'm a fan of him, and you're, you're 100% right. I love uh, C.S. Lewis. I don't necessarily agree with everything he says, but that's true of every author or writer or person, right? That's right. Um, but he, said, he says this uh, pretty incredible insight where he says, you know, when we look at the, the list of like cardinal sins, Sins are not necessarily inherent evil in their in themselves. It's just good gone bad or good gone corrupted. So if you look at jealousy, is jealousy itself something bad? It does it exist on its own? Not 
technically no, because a good type of jealousy is when you feel like you want to have someone be safe or protect them. You're looking after them. But when that goes too far, that turns into jealousy. So a lot of these voices, I'll give you an example, self-doubt, right? Self-doubt, it of course looks bad on the surface. We second-guess ourselves, we beat ourselves up, there's that voice in our head, you know, the one when you're giving a speech, you're like, well, that was weird. Yeah, Why'd you right. say it like that? That was dumb. Or, oh my gosh, I wish I could go back, but this is live, I can't change that, you know? There, there's this voice that keeps pressing in and making us feel like we're not doing a good job. However, there is a tiny, tiny good seed in there, and that is uh, humility and examining ourselves and truly taking in good critical feedback. And so if you look at each of these voices, uh, there's, there's sort of a, if you chase it all the way down, there's something in there that's redeemable. There's something in there for us that is a hidden mercy uh, gifted by God. And so I think when we read books about voices, noises, I, you know, I, I think those are, I've read a lot of books like that too, and those are good books. But I think the main thesis in a lot of those books is don't listen to the haters and don't listen to any of that negativity. And if somebody says this, you push it all back and it's all overly positive. And that, that's good. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But I think in my voice, I try to go a little bit deeper. And with the blend of psychology, spirituality, and my own hospital chaplain journey, um, I talk about if we interpret or translate or unscramble these voices, what are the good? What is the good that we can find and that we can keep? Hmm. Well, JS, you know, since the year of 2020 and the entire world faced this unprecedented crisis, which is the pandemic. And of course, that within this Christian community or within any religious community, people say, now is the time that we need to turn to faith. And now is the time we really need to find out the answers and understand why things are happening to the world today. And also, how can we respond and just simply bring the joy back to life? Because, I mean, <laughs> Grant is speaking is it's really difficult to face some of the realities you know i lost the job and i got laid off and i couldn't go back to work or i couldn't simply do the things that i was i, I used to do so i think today people tend to have more negativity or people tend to have more bitterness about life than actually being grateful about what we have at this moment. So I'm sure in your book, you also talk about, you know, like you mentioned about um, uh, maybe the forgiveness or grieve, uh, grievances or, you know, except all these things. But how, how do you think that we should be cheerful or positive in the midst of the storms? Because we, because, you know, in the Bible, Jesus said, he never promised us that we won't go through trials and we won't face tribulations. But how could you stay on top of the mountains? Or in other words, how do you know that if you push through, if you um, really stick there for a little bit longer, you're going to see the light at the end of the tunnel? 
JS, how do, how do you do it? Especially the, the millennials, the younger generations. How are we supposed to help them to understand this? Maybe not even from this religious perspective, but in general, as a life principle or as a life lesson, how do you be grateful or even stick to uh, um, stick to the goals when it's getting difficult? Hmm. So I'm going to... I'm going to break down something that I think... I think some people may disagree with this, but I, I really, really have trouble with when I've heard Christians, pastors say, uh, COVID has been a blessing because we got more time to think, mm. we got more, more time to understand. I, I don't agree with that. And I think that that really insults and mocks the over, you know, 500,000, I think it's almost 600,000 now, people who have died from, from COVID in the U.S. alone. And when I hear things like, uh, you know, be productive in the pandemic because you have so much time to yourself, and there are people posting Instagram pictures of the bread that they baked, the sourdough bread stuff. And then there was like people writing books during the pandemic because they had so much time. And I, we're lucky if we can do that. Right. There's a luxury in that. Right. Right? right. And so those who have lost their jobs, those who have lost their family members, I've sat with so many people now who have had family members lost to COVID and I've sat with people who have died from COVID. So can I say to this person, hey, look at the bright side or stay positive or keep going? Not at that moment. And things will never be the same for some of us. Even when we're quote unquote out of this and you know we're told, hey, it's okay not to wear masks anymore and there's enough of us vaccinated. Even after all that, things will never be the same. So I can't, I cannot for myself say that COVID was some kind of hidden blessing. I've just seen too much suffering from it. And I can't tell a person who's bitter, hey, don't be bitter, it'll be okay. But, I, but having said all of that, I'm just going to add this. You know, when any of us experience a traumatic event, national or 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 just in, within our, uh, our own scope. Mm. You know, when any of us face trauma like this, like COVID, or a personal loss, that loss or trauma in itself, I, I can't ever believe, I will never believe that that's a blessing or that there's anything good about that. Mm. But in the aftermath, there is something called resilience, which is the strength to keep going. That's right. And it's it's not a strength that this person asked, asked for. It's not like that it should have ever been demanded of them. In a perfect world, they never should have had to try to be strong after loss. It's unfair that, that strength would come out that way. But without that resilience, it's even harder, right? Mm. So I'm trying to say this as sensitively as I can because I don't want to tell a person who's suffering loss, hey, just build some resilience and you'll be okay. But there are ways to build resilience so that we can make it together through loss. 
And that resilience, even though no one should have ever had to try to be resilient through loss, there are ways to be resilient. And that resilience in itself can be a gift. So, you know, in my book, I talk about when trauma happens, it's nothing good. There's no good in it of itself. But afterwards, in the aftermath, if we can find purpose, if we can, if we can be in good community, uh, if even learning our own bodies again, that's called interoception. Mm. Um, there are certain ways in which in the debris of trauma afterwards, we can build ourselves up again. And that's everyone's pace. That's at everyone's tempo. That, that's going to be at their own speed. But I believe that through COVID, people are going to build resilience afterwards. Mm. And some people are building it now. We're building it at different speeds. Some people are just learning to. And, and some people are still fatigued. And it may take longer. And it may be harder. And one person may thrive. And the other person may take the rest of their lives to figure it out. But wherever they're at, each of us um, can build resilience. I believe we're capable of it. We can. Mm. We can. And I think those of us who have built resilience through this, for me, I'm saying this for me, it is my calling to offer any kind of strength that I have from another person, not making them rush, not saying, hey, get where I'm at, but rather being with that person and what in, in the limited strength that I have to help build them up and to be a shoulder for them as I see them struggling to build themselves up again. Mm. Well, JS, let's talk about the last topic. I'm sure it's on everyone's mind regarding this Christian celebrity, or I mean, I don't even know if we can call this person as a Christian celebrity anymore. It's Ravi Zechariah. Now, I'm going to read something that you shared and you tweeted on the social media. This is what you said and what you wrote. I first heard Ravi when I was 19, still an atheist. Learning about religion, I was impressed by his delivery and argumentation. I became a fan. I read two of his books, saw him live twice, listened to hundreds of hours of his sermons. And then you concluded the tweet by saying, Please, friends, don't mistake eloquence for wisdom. Do not trust a weedy, well-spoken speaker. Do not trust me. Do not trust someone who only tells their hero stories. A celebrity is not your hero, therapist, or guide. Discern wisely, fact-check, and gut-check. JS, you know, as soon as the scandal involved Ravi came out, I think it shocked almost the entire, I mean, I don't want to say just the audience, the Christian community in America, but across the world, because Ravi Zachariah, I mean, is such a Christian um, icon, a role model, but somehow that the secret was not kept well. And then everyone had this shocking, had this astonishment about what happened regarding Ravi he did. What was your reaction to that initially? And why did you decide to tweet or to share your, um, your message on a Twitter? And also, the last question is, what do you mean by that? Do not even trust me. Do not trust someone who, you know, tells their hero stories. But don't you think that we actually need more 
dramatic or, you know, this touching stories so people can really see the grace of God or can see the miracles that God perform in their lives? JS. Okay, Mengfei, I'm going to try to answer all those questions. <laughs> but I want to touch on, oh goodness, yeah. I want to touch on what you said, Christian celebrity. Uh, I, you know, I, I hate to be so basic and cynical and you know, I know that there are going to be some Christians who are more popular than others, or more more well known, or but that that phrase "Christian celebrity." When I heard it, I just said, "Yikes!" You know. Mm. And then the other thing I should start with too is, I, I feel bad even talking about it like this because, you know, the more I focus on Ravi Zacharias, the more I focus on well, here's what he did, and here's how he did it, and you know, here's, here's, here are my thoughts. It sort of pushes out the victims, uh, the survivors. So I, I do just want to take a moment to highlight that I hope when people talk about this, that it's not just about what he did. I mean, that was my, my Twitter thread. I, I talked about what he did and how he did that. But I have such, I, I, I even right now, I feel anger and compassion, just a lot of grief for these women who suffered. Mm. And so even if I just want to pause to say, if I can just pause to say that, because, you know, this is, Meng Fei, the first interview I've done where um, I've had to talk about this. Mm. And I, I talk about it with a heavy heart. So... I don't say any of this lightly, and I hope I'm not centering myself in this conversation, but, but my prayer and my heart goes out to all these victims. And we need, you know, I am trying, I'm sure many Christian leaders are trying their best to hold themselves accountable, to hold the system accountable, because it wasn't just one person. It wasn't just one, you know, Christian celebrity. It was a whole system at play. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. But, um... You know, part of that Twitter thread, the tweets that you read at the end that I said, don't trust me, don't, don't trust any eloquent, witty speaker, make sure that, you know, you discern. You know, the, the reason I, I wrote that, I have this theory, Mung Fan, I hope you'll allow me just a, a few moments to talk about this theory. Sure, go ahead. So, yeah, so I think in Christian history, at one point, Christianity and the church were at the forefront or pioneering edge of science, arts, innovation, healthcare, liberation. Mm. And you see that in the art that that was done in the past by Christian leaders, by Christian thought. And at some point, I want to say possibly in the 1900s, Christian art and Christian innovation somehow became, started becoming mediocre. Um, and I, that's a harsh word, but <clears throat> we started seeing the secular arts, or when I say secular, I'm talking about it's not promoting or has spirituality as its main theme, um, take the forefront. And now we're in the situation where Hollywood and uh, secular arts, I mean, they're at the cutting edge and science and all of that is removed uh, from Christian circles, unfortunately. Um, and when Christian art comes out, somehow it's just not as good. 
you know, I, maybe that's a controversial statement, but there are certain, there's certain Christian music that's just for Christians. There are certain Christian uh, books and things like that, and they're not all bad, and I'm not trying to be mean, mm. but if we're being honest, there's quite a lot of Christian art that's not really that great, but somehow Christians cling to it, not because it's good, but because it's labeled Christian. That's right. Because, right? Mm. So I'm not saying anything new. I think I'm saying what many, many people are thinking or have said already. So in the 90s, when somebody like Ravi Zacharias came along, it seemed like, oh my gosh, this person can speak so well, and he's telling amazing stories, and his delivery, and he's so powerful. And at the time, I was taken in, too, because I thought, oh, in the Christian world, there are good speakers, but not like this guy. This guy speaks like one of those secular people who are so at the cutting edge of, of art and innovation. And so I think people, Christians, held on to Rabbi Zacharias as some kind of new um, pioneer, you could say, or trailblazer in the Christian world as someone who could hold their own or compare with the secular world and secular arts. And so we were taken in because we were so impressed by somebody like that. We were willing to just say, whoever speaks like that, we'll throw our talent, you know, we'll throw our whole lot in with them. Mm. But then as, as the years passed and as people kind of grew, whether in their faith or in their uh, speaking ability or just kind of seeing through the seams, you can see possibly, and I, see, I say this in the Twitter thread, that Ravi's form of speaking, and I'm not just talking about him, but many Christian speakers, leaders, pastors, their form of speaking is in a way that is possibly emotionally manipulative and, you, and supplants real information or real substance with eloquence. Now, again, I'm not saying anything new, but I think we were so impressed by Ravi and, and these other abusive, you know, turns out abusive speakers that we were willing to just kind of overlook a lot of other things because we thought, finally, we have a good speaker. Finally, we have someone who can compare and compete with with secular people. Uh, but that's why I say in that, in that tweet thread, we need to be more discerning. We ought to expect more in virtue. And also, um, we, ought, we ought to expect... Um, well, maybe expect is not the right word. I think we ought to hold in a higher regard or discern better when a Christian leader is speaking, we can dismantle the vocabulary and eloquence and sort of the charm that they have. We ought to be able to see through that. We, we ought to be able to look through it. So with Ravi, there was some point where I just no longer became impressed and I was like, oh, he's using that, this kind of bag of tricks. There's this arsenal that he has. And, and so... Uh, it, it became very obvious, and I just thought, yeah, you know, this is not how I think Christianity ought to be presented. And I know some people can say, oh, you see that in hindsight, or you can look back and say that. And I thought, well, no, I can kind of see this now. You know, in that tweet thread, that, or the tweet that you read, I saw him speak twice. The first time, I was pretty impressed. The second time, I thought, man, he's just bashing people and using these very emotionally sort of pulling the strings type of stories. And I thought, Ugh, this is, this is not what Christianity is really about. I don't think. And, um, you know, I had a, a professor say, 
uh, in my sermon delivery class, he would say, what you win them with is what you win them to. In other words, you can build a certain appetite in people, and then that's what they'll keep expecting. Mm. So if you, if, if you just keep giving emotional stories to Christians, they're going to think Christianity is just about emotionalism, right? Mm. So to answer your question, Meng Fei, about, you know, can we still, what about powerful stories? What about, you know, our emotions? You know, of course we need storytelling. Of course we need stories. Of course we need, uh, you know, in Christianity, does not say that emotions are wrong or anything like that. I think we do need to exercise caution when these things are being used somehow as a sledgehammer against us or even as a scalpel against us in order to manipulate or control or win or charm over a person. So um, Christianity is all of it. It's, it's all science, history, there's art, and uh, there's storytelling, there's emotion, there's all of it. But if we pluck one of these pieces and then use it intentionally or unintentionally as, as a weapon or some kind of magnet to draw people in, uh, that's when we do a disservice to the Christian story, and that's when we harm people. And so I'm preaching this to myself because I know, you know, I'm, I'm a person of words. I love writing, mm. and I'm always trying to be mindful of, hey, am I, am I pulling at this too hard, or am I manipulating, am I writing this in a way that's not honest? You know, am I writing this in a way where I just care about attracting people? Is it clickbait? Is it sensationalism? Am I doing this to make people feel a certain way, or am I just honestly telling my story? Mm. And I think in the end, people can tell. People can tell. And I know Rabbi Zacharias and other leaders like him fooled a lot of people, but they can't fool everybody, and in the end, they fooled nobody. So that's right. So yeah, that's that's my theory, and that's that's where I'm landed on that. Yeah. Well, JS, I got one more question before letting you go. I know you have a beautiful family, and you're a father of a beautiful <laughs> child. And of course, that you know when when I click on the social media, I can see this just beautiful pictures of the family like everywhere. Meanwhile, I'm also a father of a baby daughter and she's only five months old you know and my wife and i we always have this conversation you know as a parent you know my my theory or my um plan is to say well you know i love for my daughter charlotte and in the future really can become a strong christian girl you know again grew up in this Christian or this healthy or this healthful family, you know, worship God. But meanwhile, my wife has this attitude to say, you know, we kind of let her decide what she wants because we don't know what's going to happen when she's three, when she's five, when she's 18. So she has to go through this, maybe this faith journey until she finds whatever it's available or whatever was for her. Now, Again, JS, I'm asking this on behalf of myself and my, my, and my friends around me is, should we worry about our children? Or do we really, do we need to put our Christian faith or Christian value on them at this moment? Or we should really let them just to repeat the same process that we went through from being an atheist until we met 
the grace or until we encounter the grace of God and then realize that's it. This is where I want to give my life to Christ. Wow. Longte, what a deep and powerful question. You know, can I say, first of all, congratulations on having a girl. That's amazing news. <laughs> congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> well, and thank you also for your kind words about my family. You know, just a side note, when I post those pictures, I always try to put a comment like, you know, you're just seeing the happy pictures here, but <laughs> parenting is really tough. It is. And, um, you know, the pictures don't show all the tears and all the sleepless nights and it, it's not easy. And my wife and I, the beginning of our journey was very difficult and I had to take 12 weeks off work, which was much longer than I wanted to take. <clears throat> so I don't want to fool anybody with those photos. That's just a very small glimpse of a happy moment, mm. but it's hard. Um, and maybe I can segue into your question with that. Parenting is hard. And I think it's also, there's a fear, right? That's right. Because our child, no matter how perfect, <laughs> and no parent is perfect, but even if we were perfect, our child, there's no way to control their fate, their destiny, their journey, their path, their trajectory. There's no way. And we can do our best. You know, we can... We can read the Bible to them when they're real young. We can take them to church, to youth group, all of it. We can immerse them in Christian community and, and tell them, don't do this and do this. And, and we can give them lots of freedom and make their decisions. Or, or we can you know, be more disciplinarians or one parent can do one and the other. You know, I think each of us, I, I always hear the story where you know, each of us have different kinds of parents where one parent was tough and one parent was more free. And so we all got a good blend of parenting. It could be all of that, Meng Fei, right? We can, we can have right. all the freedom or, or, you know, perfect parents, all of that. But can we, can we control the outcome? We can't, can't. Mm. This child is going to decide. I decided, you decided. In the end, we decided, right? That's right. And, and sometimes when I sit with patients who tell me about their kids and their kids, you know, hurting because uh, they're addicted to something or they're living, um, they're, they're living in a criminal life or, you know, and, and they always feel like it's their fault. Or I've sat with people who have overdosed or I've sat in their family comes in and they feel like it's their fault. You know, oh, I should have parented better. If I was just this kind of mom or that kind of dad, if I just made that phone call or this thing or put them in that program and, it's impossible to accommodate for all those choices. We can do our best and we still don't know. And so that's hard for me because I'm the kind of person that when I do something, <laughs> talking about going back to earlier, about love, about pouring out and expecting something back. You know, to be honest, I like recognition. Mm. I, I like knowing that what I'm doing has a point and a purpose and end goal and an outcome. Uh, you know, so it's hard for me to think, gosh, I only have so many years with this person, but then she's going to, she's got to grow her own wings and fly free. And all I can do is help cultivate and, and help give her, unwrap this gift of faith, mm. you know, and, and that's got to be for her to unwrap. I can't do that for her and I shouldn't try to do that for her. That's right. Ironically, the more the more we try to coerce and control, 
you know, the, the worse it will be for that person, right? And we know this throughout history. We know this in all our relationships. We know this at the workplace. If you try to control and coerce someone, they might comply with you for a little while, but that's only because they want you to stop being around them. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so part of my goal is I want my daughter one day to feel safe enough to visit home and want to come visit home. And I know that's not an original thing I'm saying. I've heard a lot of parents say that, but it's so true. I mean, I want my daughter to feel safe to tell me anything, to even be able to say, you know, I don't think I believe in God, or I have doubts about God, or I don't know about this, or I'm struggling with this thing, or I did this bad thing. And if my, if my I, I would hope my daughter feels free to tell me that, and that I would have enough grace not to say, hey, how, you know, how could you do that? But rather, okay, you know, that, that sounds hard and, you know, my feeling is I, I'm sad and how can we work through this? So I'm hoping to be that kind of parent. And I know that it's not that easy and I can just say that to you right now and it sounds idealistic and I know it's going to be way harder than that. But Mungfei, we can do the best for our children and our children are going to choose their own way. All we can do is hope and pray for them and do our absolute best. Should we discipline them? Absolutely. Set boundaries? Yes. Teach them the best we can about our faith? Yes, for sure. You know, put them in situations, hopefully, where they can thrive and learn? Mm. Yes. Correct their mistakes? Yes. But in the end, we must give some freedom to choose um, and, and to let go of pressing in too hard. So that is the challenge of parenting when to press in, when to pull back. <laughs> we won't always get that right, but by the grace of God, hopefully our children will know, and they really tried their best. And, and one thing, Mung Fei, and I know I'm going long, but I, I heard somebody say this, that our children, they don't always remember those mistakes or bad little things that parents do. Sometimes they do, but not always. But often we see our parents as a whole, like a big picture. You know, and I'm generalizing here, but when I think of my parents, my parents didn't always do their best that they could with me. There was a lot of abuse and a lot of trauma and things mm. like that. And yet when I see them as a whole, I know that they were trying their best, I think. I want to believe that. And so when I see my kid, and sometimes I think, oh my gosh, I did this little thing that's going to ruin them forever, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but if we pull back a little bit, this child, they may remember that. But I think what they will remember is the overall picture, you know. That's right. Did they love me? Did they, you know, did they pour out to me? Did they do their best? And I think that's what they'll remember. Well, JS, you know, as I listen to um, what you just shared with me, again, as a father, as a husband, and as this leader, you know, um, the two scriptures that came to my mind. And number one, I remember in the Bible it says. The steps of the righteous are ordered by the Lord. And also he says, if we delight ourselves in the Lord, and he's going to give us the desire of our heart. So regardless, no matter what happens to us or what happens, it's going to happen to us in the future. And I think ultimately that God is still sitting on the throne and he's still watching over us as long as we're obedient and we're faithful and we're willing to listen. Now, J.S. Park is a hospital chaplain, and also he's the author of the new book, 
the voices we carry, finding your own, uh, finding your one true voice in the world of clamor and noise. JS, thank you so much for taking your time being on my show, and thank you so much for sharing everything with me. And I hope and I pray that everything you do this year, the blessing. And、um, the the grace continue to pour into your life and into your job and your family. Of course, that we love to have you back on the show again because, regardless, again, like I mentioned before, how the world is going to turn, we just can't run away from God. We always need to run to the Lord. Thank you, Jeres. Mengfei, I appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me on. Much love to you. <laughs>